So that's him, just out of college. What a handsome man. For real, for real. He's got the smirk. I would love to let him talk at me. Like, I would let him just speak in my direction. And knowing that he would then go on to write children's literature, for me, it does do something. You're listening to Dada or Nothing, a variety show about the visual and performing arts presented by Hippie Pink Ferret. I'm your host, Jojo, and this week, we're going to be playing trivia. Hello, thank you for joining us today. If you're new to Dada or Nothing, this is the second half of a two-parter on Eric Carle's life and art. So you'll want to go back and listen to the first episode if you haven't already. Reviewing Season 1, Episode 1 of Dada or Nothing, The Art of Eric Carle, Part 1. He was born with a little sniffle. Stock market crash. Does it do that every season? Silly boy. Ah, ah, ah. In America, I got to draw my pictures and no one shoved a spoon down my throat <laughs> until I vomited. Oh my God, German expressionism. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh. Top 10 oh. terrible things in Eric Carl's past. A round of applause for trauma. We'll be accompanying Eric on his move back to America and delve into some reasons why we're so obsessed with him. Reinitiating two-player game. Please reset team names. Jerusha, can you share a fun fact about yourself? I am proficient in Morse code. Really? I am. How did that come about? In all sincerity, I just really needed to be different when I was 12, and that it actually served me really well. I made a bunch of friends, and I got to talk a lot of smack about my teachers, and no one knew. Did you just sit out your window and just click, 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 <laughs> until somebody was like, oh, a friend? The secret <laughs> underground Morse code enthusiast Truly. network. <laughs> No, it was just all the guys that were on Discord at like 13. Ah, Oh, yeah. There it is. There it is. Yes, the Morse code community. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. And thank you for opening up. Maddie, a fun fact about yourself, please. Oh my god, a fun fact about me is that I have strong opinions about brands of lemonade. I, I just discovered that like if someone poured me a glass of lemonade, I would have a sip and I'm like, what is this country crock? Like Minute Maid is fine, but it burns a little. I don't know if you've noticed that. These are the things that you don't think about until you're drinking it and you're like, oh my god, battery acid, sexy. What is your favorite lemonade? Hot take, I don't think Dell's is very good. Rupture in the lemonade community. Yeah, the lemonade community is coming for me on your Discord server. A schism. Um, so I'm going to say right now, I'm kind of on a new own journey, but it changes. I'm ready to be surprised. She's ready to be surprised. That's her fun fact. That's my fun fact. I'm ready to be surprised. Names approved. Today's competitors are Team Newman's Own Lemonade versus Team Morse Code. Current score is Team Newman's Own Lemonade 1, Team Morse Code 0. Now reviewing game rules. I will occasionally interrupt our conversation about Eric to pose a trivia question. Most are multiple choice and worth a certain amount of points. However, when we do encounter an open-ended question, there are two ways you can go about it. Make your best guess and succeed, you'll double your score plus three extra points. No penalties for being wrong, either. But if you're stumped and feeling frisky, you can make the question multiple choice by going da-da or nothing, meaning you risk your entire score. Choose correctly and you double it. Pick poorly and you're left with nothing. Listen closely to our narrative for potential hints on these brain busters. After eight normal questions, we will wrap up our discussion and go to our final round. I will pose the most difficult open-ended question in the game and once that's solved, we will see if you are worthy of a place in the Dada Daddy Hall of Fame. Oh my word! I did not know the stakes stakes were so high. I know. The stakes are very high. Okay, okay. Game start, good luck, and may the best daddy win. (laughs) 
So it's 1952 and Eric has arrived in New York with $40 in his pocket. He thought this was a considerable amount of money, remembering how much his father made during the depression. His uncle allowed him to apartments at one of his properties in the Bronx until he got on his feet. Eric had a place to live, now he needed a job. By chance, he became aware of the annual New York Art Director Show where he got exposed to the work of Leo Leone. A cold call to Leone led to a meeting with George Kokorian, an art director for the New York Times. Eric's portfolio was so impressive that it landed him a job at the newspaper just two weeks after he officially immigrated. He worked as a graphic designer in their promotions department and said his favorite part about working at the New York Times was its cafeteria. I yeah. like it here. They don't make me sit on anyone. <laughs> Yum. He was hot stuff, all Madison Avenue and Brooks Brothers suits and a very talented individual. One of his many talents was his uncanny ability to be drafted. Again? <laughs> Again. This oh. time by America. By the other team. Uncle Sam came knocking five months into his new life and asked that he join the Korean War effort. He was sent to Fort Dix in New Jersey to complete basic training. His fellow privates, just like his German schoolmates, helped him grasp the common language. His English improved so much that, while on a weekend past visiting friends, Eric amazed them with the number of swears he had added to his vocabulary. Of course. What a boy. Man after my own heart. Funnily enough, after passing a German language test with flying colors, because of course he did, he was sent back to Germany to report for duty with the 2nd Armored Division nicknamed Hell on Wheels. So he just came to America to get kicked back to Germany for knowing German. This takes place just right after Eric returned to Germany. Mission start. Private Carl, reporting for duty, sir! Carl, what do you know about artillery? Nothing, sir. I was trained in infantry, sir! Can you drive a truck? Carl! No, sir! You will be a mail clerk! Sir, yes, sir! Mission complete. Eric tends to speed past this next part in retellings of his life. His time in the army isn't dreadfully important, but I think it has more to do with Dorothea. Eric had just run into an old colleague from the German fashion magazine, and they just so happened to be accompanied by their beautiful younger sister. The two of them were married right before Eric's discharge, and she followed him back to New York, where they would have two children together. Eric returned to his job at the New York Times, and two years later would take a better paying one as the art director for an advertising agency named L.W. Froelich. And then, well, I'll let him tell it. When the children were six and four years old, Dorothea and I separated and were eventually divorced. This simple sentence cannot begin to convey my pain and anguish at this breakup. I could not get information on Dorothea in any of his retellings of his life. He basically skips over it and is like, it's too painful for me. When you break your heart for real the first time, oh goddamn. After the failure of his marriage, Eric found himself, as you can imagine, in a rut. The dream of being back in his native country was becoming stale and lonely. He saw his children on weekends but the bulk of his days were spent alone in his apartment struggling to come up with advertising campaigns. One particularly tricky year, he pulled out his portfolio for inspiration. During his time at the academy, he played around with these funny posters collaged from different colored tissue papers. He figured that was a good enough place to start and got to work. For one product, he decided to craft a lobster out of bright pinks, reds, and purples. This advertisement would run in a journal soon to be skimmed by Bill Martin Jr. while waiting in a doctor's office. Question five. This is genuine trivia. This question is worth two points and is multiple choice. This collage lobster was made to advertise what product? Is it A, a seafood restaurant, B, antihistamine medication, or C, sunscreen? You have 10 seconds to answer. Is, 
nothing lobster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it down now. I would say B for an antihistamine. I said C, lobster allergies trigger anaphylaxis. <laughs> Sorry to say, Maddie, Jerusha's right on this one. I actually knew this, like, way beforehand. Like, this is one of my fun facts at Trivia Night. Maddie, 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 you're actually not off with your reasoning. The thing I left out was L.W. Froelich specialized in pharmaceutical advertising. The lobster was referring to a shellfish allergy. <laughs> She's so upset. <laughs> I'm bothered, but it's fine. She's like, I went and got that one. I went and got that one. I'm, I'm bothered. Team Newman's own lemonade one. Team Morse code two. Bill was struck by the execution of the crustacean. By the time he tracked down Eric in the mid-1960s, he had left his job to pursue freelance work. Martin facilitated a commission between Eric and a publisher of educational materials for children. While Eric completed several book covers for them, he found no joy in doing so. It was the same problem he had with the agency. The material reminded him of his German elementary school days, boring facts to regurgitate onto paper with hard pencils. Right before Eric wandered off, Bill approached him with a manuscript. It was titled Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? And he wanted Eric to do the illustrations. Eric couldn't put specific words to what he was feeling as he made the mock-up. The text was simple, but something about its rhythm set his imagination on fire. He explained in interviews, It reawakened in me the struggles of my own childhood. Eric fancied the notion of authoring something himself, but was hesitant. He had stopped paying attention to grammar back in grammar school, and he was even less confident writing in English. But his mind flooded with ideas whenever he played in his studio. He wrote each one down and stored them away in a cardboard box, just in case. It makes more sense now why a lot of his books are for younger kids or with more simplified language because his experience with English at a young age was such a complicated mm -hmm. relationship due to his time in Germany. So that's really, that's fascinating. Eric continued with freelance work until one commission for World Publishing brought him out to lunch with their editor at the time, Anne Benedus. They were talking about the historical cookbook Eric had illustrated for them when he tested the statement, I also do picture books, and waved off his fears about grammar. I am not interested in grammar, she said. I am interested in ideas. Eric submitted a draft called One, Two, Three to the Zoo, which was a counting book with no words about animals on a train. Much to his surprise, he was soon mailed a contract for its publication. Filled with confidence, Eric unpacked his box of ideas with Benedus. Her interest peaked when he started discussing a concept he once had while idly using a hole punch. Question six. Category is literature. This question is open-ended. This idea would become the very hungry caterpillar. But when Eric first pitched the idea to Benedus, our favorite crunching critter was conceived as what other insect? Once you feel confident in an answer, if you're going open-ended, I'm going to afford an additional point if you can tell me what the insect was named because he had a name in the draft. Unless it's Henry with an I specifically. Henry. Unless it's Henry, the poor Porcupine, I don't want to hear it. I'm trying to think what other insect has any sort of similar trajectory that would make sense. But then my question is maybe the concept of the butterfly hadn't happened yet. I locked in an answer. Got it. All right, so we both went open-ended on this question. Yeah, let's do it. You have 10 seconds to answer this question as open-ended. Time's up. For those of you going data or nothing, there are three options for you to select. If you select incorrectly, you will lose your score. But if you select correctly, you will double your score. The very hungry caterpillar was conceived as what other insect? Was it A. Willy the worm, B. Tip the termite, or C. Aren't the ant? You have 10 seconds to answer.
Jerusha. What did you write down? I honestly thought a worm. A worm. Wrigley Squiggly still eats, but I was thinking more about the things that his father would talk about when he was younger, so. Do you want to throw your name in there? Homely, the worm. All right. I said a snake due to his previous anecdotes regarding the garden snakes. Oh my gosh. Um, and I put his father's name. Jerusha, you were correct. What? It was, in fact, a worm. I in- hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which Roman numeral am I going to now? Oh, my God. Yeah, it was originally conceived as a bookworm because he was- Oh, my God. He was punching holes into papers and thought, oh, oh a little worm biting through. through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His name was Willie the Worm. Willie with an eye. Wait, that- Willie with an eye and Henry with an eye? Oh yes. You I actually get a half point? No, you're oh, not getting a half point. You just got it. <laughs> you have seven. You don't you need seven. seven and a half. But Maddie, again, with your reasoning striking me, the ending was different. So he did go through the day of the week because it was called a week with Willie Worm. Yeah. And he ate all the things. But at the end, he didn't metamorphosize. And in Eric Carl's own words, well, I don't know who he's thinking at the end. He's just fat. He's just thick. And he had a little frowny food face. Trauma? He had food trauma. No, this is all food trauma. I will say the idea of having it be his father's name was really sweet. Too bad my thoughtful insight is worth nothing in this game. (laughs) Team Newman's own lemonade one. Team Morse code seven. Game paused. Uh, Sorry, guys. I'm going to have to pause this again. Dada or nothing. We'll be back in just a bit. layout was tricky. Benedice would have to outsource printing to a Japanese publisher due to its complexity. But she wasn't so sure about a worm in the lead role. How about a caterpillar? She mused after a thoughtful silence. With no hesitation, Eric exclaimed, Butterfly! And that was that. The Very Hungry Caterpillar solidified Eric's reputation as the Bruce Springsteen of kindergarten to third grade, as museum director Nick Clark would put it. I'm sorry, what? The Bruce Springsteen of kindergarten to third grade. He did tours. (laughs) The little larva has become his own self-contained brand. Spun off into plays and animations, and you can buy caterpillar puzzles, clothes, and if you're in Holland, bottles of green shower gel. The book's international and intergenerational popularity continued to surprise Eric to the end of his life. He admitted to being tired of answering questions about it after a few decades. I have about 75 books, and I think they're fine. He laughed. Eric rejected any idea that he held wisdom on how to create abiding children's literature. He said he only made pictures, not literature. Why is the caterpillar beloved? I don't know. I think it's a book of hope. You little insignificant caterpillar or child can grow up and spread your wings and try your talent and fly all over the world. I wonder if that's it. Eric would use the resources afforded to him by his rock star status to found the Eric Carl Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts. During construction, he would romp around the construction site with a smile on his face as if the whole thing was one big Lego project. The museum still exists today, devoted to picture book artists and offering programs that supplement what kids might miss out on in their normal education as budget cuts slash the compensation of art departments. True to form, Eric's favorite piece of art in the museum was not hung from any of its walls. That honor went to the series of tiny flies painted inside urinals in the men's room. And did you know they're there because it is proven that they improve quote-unquote aim by 80%. I would like to paint these in every single public restroom in New York. Amen. Amen. Question seven. Category is politics. This question is worth one point and is multiple choice. Which United States president nominated The Very Hungry Caterpillar as one of his favorite books from childhood? Is it A, Donald Trump, B, Barack Obama, C, George W. Bush, or D, Bill Clinton? You have 10 seconds to answer. 
just trying to think there politically. The Very Hungry Caterpillar Alliance. Hmm. Three plums. Is that is that a socialist? Is that thing? a socialist ideology? I'm gonna here. I'm just going with my gut, so I'm gonna go with C. I also went with C. You both went with George W. Bush. Yeah. Congratulations, you are yeah. correct. I think the craziest thing about George W. Bush is that he's an amazing portraiture artist. Yeah, it's pretty wild. There's a lot of saturation to his colors, and I think that can definitely be inspired by the bright hues of Eric Carl. I was trying to do the math like timeline-wise, and I'm like, well, none of them would have been kids, so who would have said this? Barack Obama, actually. He would have oh. been seven years old at the time oh, of publication. Yes. yes. So George W. Bush, however, was in his 20s. Listen, I think that's iconic. <laughs> you can feel however you feel. Iconic behavior. Team Newman's own lemonade too. Team Morse code eight. Before we wrap up our story, I would like to discuss how Eric made his iconic collages. It started with applying acrylic paint to tissue paper, often using various tools to give each sheet a unique texture. The trick to making good sheets was going far enough to create patterns that were eye-catching without being overly complex. He would make these painted papers in batches as he had to wait for them to dry. Eric stored leftovers from previous projects in long, narrow cabinets sorted by color. Let's throw in a little fun question worth a point. What was Eric Carl's favorite color? Pink. We say pink. Green. It was yellow. Oh. It was the hardest color to work in. He really loved making the sun. And when like yellow was right, yellow was right because it was so hard to make look good without terminating when you mix it with other colors. So it ended up being his favorite. Team Newman's own Lemonade 2. Team Morse Code 8. He then created a sketch on bright white cardstock and used tracing paper to define shapes he needed to cut out from the painted sheets. He took a razor and carefully did so, using a brush to apply glue to the shape before rubbing it down in the appropriate place. He'd often supplement his work with crayons, colored pencils, or watercolors. There was a large amount of freedom to Eric's process. It didn't lack direction, but he didn't plan out textures or shapes in advance. What, from your perspectives, makes Eric work? From a teacher's standpoint, I think it's great because it crosses so many curricular lines not only in an art way but it's literature it's science for like young kids who are just getting that print awareness where they're just wanting to have a book in their hands and learn book handling skills it's a great book to give them because you have those very beautiful engaging colors for them to look at teachers like Eric Carle because it can span across so many topics and is developmentally appropriate for so many ages all the way up to 20 turns out you can go all the way up to 20 (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that is so touching about Eric Carle's work and why it can appeal to the kids who are first reading it, to the parents that are rereading it to their children because it was their favorite book growing up. It really reignites that childlike interaction with the world around you, which I think is a staple of Eric Carle's work and relationship to the public, especially from the platform that his art was able to be consumed. It pushes your imagination outwards with the simple geometric shapes and that casual characterization of things that don't have voices and things that don't have names. It's a great stepping stone for a lot of young artists and just for a lot of young kids in general. Almost easy to like him as much as we do. You know, I don't really know a soul who doesn't like the Very Hungry Caterpillar and what would they have against it? If they have anything against it, I'd be very worried for them. They were just like, um, this book is too food positive for me. (laughs) 
But he ate how much? Oh my God. Man. Eric prided his technique on being accessible to children, but why were his collages so effective if a child could do them? Let's talk about it from a creative perspective. Eric never attached himself to any role models or any specific movements outside of comments like his tissue papers betrayed an impressionistic influence or whatever. He often called his work expressionistic if he were to put a title on it. He personally identified as a poster artist who had left the commercial sphere, and I think it explains a lot about his approach to design. Especially during the time Eric studied the form, posters operate on a certain level of literal mindedness that's paired with the invitation to imagine, just like you were saying, Jerusha. For example, if an advertisement is for shoes, you'll see shoes. You'll see legs or empty space for you to project your thoughts on so you can mentally interact with the concept of those shoes. And hopefully, you'll imagine yourself buying them. It's all about distilling ideas to their essential components and the reduction of visual pollution, to talk about it the way Carl did. You won't really be blown away by how nice those shoes are if too many things within the design distract you away from them. It's just creative capitalism, I love it. Eric found a way to kind of pair his imagination to a way that it worked towards his benefit. Eric said the process of his refinement was an intuitive one that wasn't really scientific whatsoever. He operated under very few self-imposed limitations, besides things like keeping below a 220 word count or projects within 32 pages. Instead of rules, he attached himself to responsibilities, like he had a responsibility to his audience to convey a clear idea in a tasteful, appealing, and important way. After all, that's what you do in advertising. The white backgrounds Eric often used were deliberate. He would talk about them a lot. He actually designed his museum in accordance to how much white space was in it. They served as space that his young readers could fill in with their own ideas, while serving the visual purpose of contrasting with his collages to increase their impact and therefore readability. His art was meant to be simple, not simplistic. If a book talks about a purple fox, then on the page, you'll see a purple fox and that's probably it. But the various tissue papers the fox is made out of, the numerous colors, the colliding and interlocking patterns, those have thought to them. And with nothing else on the page, you're left to examine the texture of the art and break it down in your mind. You've been invited into the piece and now you're mentally engaged with the clear idea of a purple fox. If I can interject, it's Please. also this concept that we talk about in teaching where you give kids material that is accessible to them and you just give them the opportunity to engage with it and over time they will read is the philosophy of this teaching methodology. So they say like if you have a little kid who loves Eric Carle, give him a lot of Eric Carle books and eventually he will start to read because he is picking up on that language and since Eric Carle is very specifically saying purple fox, the kid is now making the connection between the words that are purple fox and what that means as an image, like what purple fox is. It's the same way we teach number sense in math where we show them the number one, we show them one coin, we show them one tally mark and show that all these different representations of the thing, that's what one is. But in reading, it's that idea of making the connection between symbols, because to kids, letters are just symbols until we give them meaning. So when you give the words that meaning and can connect it directly to the picture of the purple fox, that's a strong way to teach reading, right? And he's just setting these students up for success. That barrier to entry is so low. Yeah, and because it's purple and it interacts with the world in a way that is both imaginative and kind of surreal in its own way, and the literalism paired with it. It's just so cool to yeah. see how kids engage with that right away and it helps them not only read but trigger an uh, interpretive sense. I think one of the most interesting points you made was the white space. The design of the museum and looking back at the way that Carl opened up imagination to kids of all ages also works hand in hand with finding new ways to learn. I think the Da Vinci quote he hung up in his studio says it all. The more minutely you describe, the more you will confuse the mind of the reader and the more you will prevent 
prevent him from a knowledge of the thing described. Eric's art is immersive. It works really well on kids, right? So what? Why is he so special? So here's where we enter the realms of early cognitive development, because teachers and psychologists have been asking themselves a similar question. What are his books doing after that moment of immersion that makes them so beloved? The most common theory around is pure and simple. He has empathy for a child's situation. Eric strongly believed the second biggest trauma in a child's life was the transition from home life to school. If you're curious what the first one was, it's birth. You know that part where you just start existing? Yeah, right? <laughs> That's traumatic. Enough. Very traumatizing, frankly. His own transition, as we heard, was not the smoothest. So he made concerted efforts to have interactive elements within his books that transformed them into something you not just read, but something you played with. Eric wanted to encourage a childlike approach to understanding the world, not to speak it to his readers in a childish tone that talked down to their experiences. The holes in Caterpillar that kids instinctively poke at, or the blinking lights in the very lonely Firefly, these were dimensions that motivated children to bridge the concepts of play to the abstract experience of learning. Question 8. So for our final regular question, the category is genuine trivia. This question is worth two points and is multiple choice. I would like to say that if I get this wrong, I will deduct two points for my score. I'm raising the stakes because oh we wanted to be competitive. Oh boy. What 2005 book of Eric's had its publication delayed because the sound effect built into it malfunctioned in over 150,000 copies? Is it A, The Very Quiet Cricket, B, 10 Little Rubber Ducks, C, around the farm, or D, turn, crank, zoom. You have 10 seconds to answer. B. We got B. We got 10 little rubber ducks. And for you, Jerusha? C, around the farm. Two points for Maddie. Yeah, let's Woo! go. And delete two for me. Rubber ducky, Team Newman's Own Lemonade 4. Team Morse Code 6. And this goes beyond gimmicks. If you take a close eye to a lot of his work, there's something extra. Caterpillar, for instance, demonstrates how counting numbers can relate to an increase of an amount of something present. Yep. The art in The Grouchy Ladybug shows a correlation between the placement of the sun and the time of day. This is what I'm saying. We're doing like cross regular yeah. standards. He goes into a lot of science, even though he feels like he doesn't have a good education because he was a high school dropout. He was very insecure about his educational level. And in one, two, three to the zoo, Eric places a mouse character somewhere on every page. He doesn't bring attention to it, but it's openly present, so it has the potential to invoke a child's curiosity about why it is there. It could inspire them to form their own narrative around the mouse. Who is this mouse that's clearly there? And how do his reactions inform how he feels about the animals on the train? The readers were invited to put their imagination between the spaces, and they did. So now they have a personal attachment to a book that doesn't even have words. Now, this isn't to say cracking open Will You Be My Friend will make your child Einstein, but these elements are there for the kids who will find them. Children cognitively develop at their own pace and according to their own interests. Eric's immersive work provides a lot of things for them to latch onto. The future artist might be obsessed with the purple fox's colors. The future mathematician is going to be obsessed with counting the foods in Caterpillar. And the future storyteller is going to make a story about the mouse. In a sense, Eric is inviting his audience to interact with his work in the same way he interacted with nature as a kid. He drifted towards what he was interested in as he wandered the woods and whatever he chose, his father provided information. There's a way that Eric's work connects 
connects to children, that connects them back to the world and their teachers. Another layer that he brings to the table. None of his things are gendered, which I feel like so many children's books are like, this little girl and this little boy. It's very inclusive. There's a lot to be said about the fact that it is based completely outside of society, and it is very much a back-to-earth, back-to-childhood experience. All this being said, if Eric were here right now, he'd probably be like, that's cool. It sounds like you read a lot of books. Literally. <laughs> and then I would cry because I love him. And also, he's so handsome. Oh my god. It's kind of ironic to the spirit of Eric Carle's work to minutely describe why something so simple works. Sometimes it's fun to get into why artifacts us the way it does. Like, why did this guy and his silly tissue papers become an international sensation? Why do we love Eric Carle? I want to make sure I emphasize that this is the question I'm asking. I'm not gaming to answer how do we make great art like Eric Carle, or how do we become as successful as Eric Carle? Because I don't know, and neither did he. When he made a speech accepting his honorary degree from Bates, he greatly emphasized that he was lucky. He would have never made children's books if Bill Martin Jr. had chosen to skim a different magazine. What advice Eric had for the aspiring artist was instead to listen to your inner voice. Follow it not because it will bring you great success, but follow it to discover what art you need in your life, whether that be paintings, theater, sunsets, or walks through nature, because that's when you learn something about the world and who you are. Eric received about 10,000 fan letters a year, often from children commenting on his books or sending him art that emulated his style. Before we launch into our final question, here are three that he often shared. Dear Eric, our teacher made us read all your books. Will you ever retire? Love, Jennifer. Dear Eric, I would very much like to visit you, but I'm not allowed to cross the street. But I can't cross but I can't the street. Cross the street. <laughs> Last but not least, Rebecca, six years old, writes, Dear Eric, do you have a job? <laughs> this is so cute. It's like my mother at every so Thanksgiving. So I, I don't see how this could be your job making these books. Too much fun. Too much fun. Too much fun. I heard labor was sad. It's time for the final round. Current scores are Team Newman's own Lemonade 4, Team Morse Code 6. Hot dads only beyond this point. Category is art history. This question is open-ended, but you may make it multiple choice by going Dada or nothing. I will be going Dada or nothing on this question. <laughs> it's my only chance to win. I can think of three artists. I will, for the sake of sportsmanship, I will go Dada or nothing. Dada or nothing, my dudes. Eric believes he first saw the painting that inspired his book, The Artist Who Painted a Blue Horse, during his visit to Herr Krause's house. The aptly named Blue Horse One was created by what German expressionist? You have 10 seconds to answer this question as open-ended. Time's up. For those of you going Dada or nothing, there are four options for you to select. If you select incorrectly, you will lose your score. But if you select correctly, you will double your score. Blue Horse One was created by what German expressionist? Is it A. Wassily Kandinsky, B. Albert Bloch, C. Heinrich Kampendock, or D. Franz Marc? You have 10 seconds to answer. to go with Wassily Kandinsky. How about you, Maddie? Are you okay? Well, I put Kandinsky, and then I <laughs> changed my answer at the last moment to D. Franz Mark? Yeah.
guys. Maddie won. <gasps> yes! Yeah! So it was Franz Mark. Maddie, you doubled your score and Jerusha, you wiped out, meaning Maddie, you're in the Dada Daddy Hall of Fame. Oh my God, what did I do to deserve this? Final score is Team Newman's own Lemonade 8, Team Morse Code 0. Congratulations to Maddie Oldham on being the first to enter the Dada Daddy Hall of Fame. Jerusha, thank you for being such a kind competitor. I feel like I never would have gotten here without you, so thank you. <laughs> I love a good sportsman game. Yes, yes, sports. Yes. Ready, on three. Oh. Sports! sports! So Jerusha, despite you not winning today, you're still a daddy in my book. Oh, um, in my book as well. I'll be your big papa. Before we go, thank you so much to everyone out there who is listening to our first episode. I hope you enjoyed the trip. And I really, really, really appreciate my first guests, Jerusha and Maddie, for coming in. Thank you for having us. It was so, so much fun. It's been an honor. Give one big goodbye. Bye-bye. See you later, skater. <laughs> Dada or Nothing is a production of Hippie Pink Ferret. And I've been Jojo, your host. Thanks again to my guests Maddie Oldham and Jerusha Wright. Sources and links, such as one to a transcript, can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, why not keep up to date with our studio on Facebook or Instagram at Hippie Pink Ferret. That is H-I-P-P-I-E Pink Ferret. If you really like what you heard, consider becoming a patron or making a one-time PayPal donation. You'll get a shout-out, unlock exclusive content like access to our private Discord server, and every bit of your generosity allows me to keep the lights on and provide more content. I do write, edit, and produce everything myself right now, so any little bit you can provide to the field of edutainment is very much appreciated. Custom music by Alec Rice. Additional songs and sound effects provided by Mixkit, Zapsplot.com, Descript, and Envato Elements. All audio used is free to use or properly licensed. Again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen. Remember to find reasons to have art in your life.